yesterday, we had a, um, um, well, let me introduce myself just in case I haven't met you. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the, the pastors here at Seer Bible and want to welcome you if you're, you're visiting. And uh, we got a gift for you at the info booth. If you're visiting, just want to encourage you to go grab that and, and say hi. So well, welcome. Thanks for being here. And like I said, we're in John 17. And yesterday, just as a, a couple highlights, yesterday we spent a basically almost a full day. We had um, about 100 people here yesterday for a marriage conference that we did. And uh, we had uh, Full Belly Deli for all those who attended for free, a free continental breakfast, child care for the kids. And, and yesterday, um, I'm going to kind of share something with you that, that, you, that either is, you're going to think is really funny or you're not going to get the context, and, um, but I'm going to go for it anyway. And uh, <clears throat> one of the couples, they, they, uh, there was a few couples from another church, and, and they attended, and uh, they came up to me, and they shared something with me. And so as a backdrop, before I share it, there's a, there's a TV show called Parks and Rec. How many of you are familiar with Parks and Rec? Some of you don't want to admit you watch TV. It's okay. It's okay. Um, my wife and I, we, uh, we watched, uh, have watched Parks and Rec, all the episodes. And, and Parks and Rec, there's a, um, the main character. She's in a town called Pawnee. And what she's trying to do is get this town through the Parks and Rec Department to just be a great town. And the people of Pawnee just refuse to make it a great town, basically. They're complainers, and they're a little weird. They're a little offbeat. And, and on the border of Pawnee is another town, and, and that town is called Eagleton. And Eagleton is just, like, perfect. It's awesome. It's beautiful. It's luscious. And, and, and Pawnee... Uh, kind of wishes they were Eagleton, and it, there's this kind of tension that exists between them. And, and this couple came up to me yesterday and said, we feel like we're from Pawnee visiting Eagleton. <clears throat> and uh, they were blessed. They were really blessed. And we're thankful for that, thankful to have the resources for that, uh, thankful to have the volunteers, a lot, of, a lot of work put out there. And it was just, uh, for me, um, it was a phenomenal ta- time. I know it was for my wife as well. And uh, for those of you who attended, did, did you guys enjoy it? For those of you who are here, and, um, yeah, it was good. Yeah, praise the Lord. We want to do more of those kind of things in the future. And uh, it, it was kind of fun. We, we, uh, we had a certain amount of signups, and then we said, hey, we're going to give you full belly deli for free. And then we doubled our signups. So <clears throat> whatever it takes to get your marriage right. Um, so... Uh, and then just as a, um, a highlight, we, we've, we've got the SO trip to Mexico. We're sending a, a good-sized missions team now um, down to Mexico, um, not this week, but the following week. The funds have been covered for that. And so if you've been praying for that to happen, thank you. Um, that's all covered. The only thing they're asking for at this point is they need 10 more twin-size sheets uh, to help. If you don't know, uh, SO Ministries serves orphans and widows. That's what SO uh, stands for. And so they're going to go down there, and they're going to help out and they're going to give these gifts away to um, mothers in need and families in need, and that's what that's for. So if you want to donate that, we've got a barrel in the back. Uh, you can drop that off this week. And then just, I know Brad shared about Easter, but just because, you know, um, I'm, I'm the guy teaching here and, and want to cast that vision, I want to encourage you to take those cards we've given you, hand them to somebody that normally wouldn't come, uh, that you don't think would come, pray over those cards. Uh, and then we've got posters available you can take, and you can hang them out, hang them up at your workplace. You've probably already seen a few around town, and and pray over those, and, and that uh, next week, the simple gospel preached would save souls. And so I want to encourage you to pray, and not just pray, but to invite people. And we get to celebrate the fact that Jesus is not dead. Amen? Amen. That's not an April Fool's Day thing, right? It's, it's a real deal. And then we've got Good Friday, too. And I want to encourage you to come to our Good Friday service, which is uh, an awesome time as well. <clears throat> John 17, 
we're in um, we're in the Gospel of John, and to this point, in the last few moments of Jesus's life, we have seen Jesus wash his disciples' feet. He partakes in the Last Supper, which is amazing because in Scripture Jesus actually says this is really beautiful. Um, after this Last Supper, he tells his disciples that he will no longer partake of the fruit of the vine until he comes back for us again. That Jesus, we partake in communion to remember, but Jesus doesn't partake in communion in heaven because he's waiting to partake in communion again for his bride when they come home. He's waiting for us to come home before he partakes. So he's taken communion with them. He's given the revelation of Peter's denial. He's comforting them in these last few moments of his life. In the upper room, he gives them the promise of the Holy Spirit. He teaches that we are the branches, that he is the vine. He gives a new commandment to love one another as God has loved us. And now in John 17, he prays. For the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus speaking to the disciples about the Father. He's preparing them for leaving. So he's He's telling, them, he's telling them, he's teaching them, he's saying this is what the Father is, this is what it's going to be like, this is what's going to happen. Now Jesus turns and he speaks to the Father about the disciples. He prays. This passage is called the High Priestly Prayer. It's the longest segment of prayer recorded of Jesus that we have in all of Scripture. In fact, John Knox, who it was said of John Knox, the great reformer, that he preached uh, with a sword in one hand and a Bible in the other. And the great theologian John Knox called this chapter the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Scripture. He called it the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Scripture. That he saw it as a very beautiful passage. So much so, in fact, that it is said that when John Knox was on his deathbed as he was uh, getting ready to leave this world and go home, that he had this chapter that we're going to read together read to him over and over again. He found it as a great comfort. Um, we, we are seeing what it is like to really pray. And it's interesting, we, we have the Lord's Prayer that most of us know or have come to know or have heard. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, they will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? That, that prayer. But this really, this is the Lord's Prayer. This is the priestly prayer. This is, this is Jesus, not only teaching what prayer is like. This is Jesus really actually praying. And so we are going to get a glimpse into the prayer life of God himself. And what we need to see, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this here more in a few moments, is, is that God is a God of intimacy. So much so that that's why he exists in the, the fact that we, we recognize to one degree or another trying to fathom the idea that he's a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They've always been in intimacy, they've always been connected, and they've always been in relationship. That's why you and I, because we're made in the image of God, desire good relationship and healthy relationship. And we get this view, we get, a, we get to look in on God conversation. The temple of, the, uh, of God, as John Knox says, that we're looking in now, we're looking into the Holy of Holies inside the temple, the, the most sacred of moments, if you will. <clears throat> so... With that said, as uh, those of you who are family and you come here, we have a tradition to give God honor and worth as we read the word. So if you are able to this morning, please stand with me 
as we read the entire chapter, step into his word, step into his prayer, and let us read together starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, in them and you and me, and that they may may become perfectly one, so the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. And everyone said? You may be seated. Here's the way I'm going to tackle this. One commentator says, Though the church has always cherished and meditated on this prayer, and though individual Christians have studied it in great detail, its rich truths have never been exhausted. And I say that because the, the weight of this, to explain to you, to uh, break it down to you this morning, would require more than the time I have. Either that or we're just going to commit to being here for a few hours. What do you say? Some of you are totally down. Praise God for that. Um, 
And so what I want to do is I want to, in essence, I, I think as I study this, I, I, we'll, we'll tackle um, the application side at the end through the verses before us. But I kind of want to give basically a theology on prayer this morning, a teaching on what prayer is. Uh, I think it's actually, in, in many ways, it's, it's good for the church to stop and to think about what prayer is and what's happening in prayer and why we should pray. Can I share something with you that uh, is a real reality in regards to prayer? Prayer, prayer is harder than preaching. I don't know what you would rather do more if I asked you. Would you rather pray or would you rather preach? What do you think you'd choose? Yeah. <laughs> and yet here I am, right? I have never fallen asleep preaching. I have never in uh, preaching... I have to some degree, but not, not quite, in preaching, forgot that I was preaching. Right? I haven't. I have forgotten where I was going in a sermon. I have said things I probably shouldn't have said in a sermon. But I have not forgotten while I was preaching that I was preaching. Yet in prayer, I, I've been guilty of that. I've been guilty of falling asleep. I've been I'm guilty of, Lord, I love you. God, I pray for my kids. and oh, I'm, I could use some pizza right now. Oh, what am I doing? I'm praying. Oh, yeah, I'm praying. So I think it's important to, to understand that this is a difficult thing and, and, and good teaching needs to exist on it. So I just want to take some time to define prayer, what prayer is, what it looks like, and at the end, we'll, we'll use some application through the text itself. I've actually, I have a little to-do list and, uh, that I carry with me in my phone on a regular basis, and what I've done is I've made note that it would be good at some point uh, to do a several-week-long series on this passage. And so just know there'll be more coming at some point, but I can't exhaust this piece of Scripture to be sure. So what is prayer? First of all, prayer is feeding the soul. This is number one. So again, Jesus teaches us. There's, there's times actually in Psalms, if you look at Psalms 42, Psalms says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul Pants for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for God, the psalmist says. Or as the quote before you, the great Puritan Thomas Watson said, A godly man cannot live without prayer. A man cannot live unless he takes his breath. Nor can the soul unless it breathes forth its desires from God. Your soul was created to long. We've said it before that there's no such thing as a worship-neutral person. Everyone longs for something, longs for something more. I saw a post uh, from a friend on Facebook the other day that, that they basically had stated, I, I've, I've ran after drugs, I've ran after sex, I ran after alcohol to feed a longing within my soul and I have not found it. They're lost. The soul has a longing, it has a hunger, and that hunger and that longing is only satiated by, by the love of God, by the grace of God. One pastor actually teaches in regards to, to knocking on the door in prayer that they were to knock. And when we knock on that, that door for prayers, we're, we're petitioning to God that, that he'll answer the door. But the reality is it's not about him just answering the door. The reason that that analogy is there, the reason that we partake in communion is because it's about feeding on Jesus. Jesus, in essence, is saying, knock on my door, I'll open it to you because I want to eat with you. I want to dine with you. I want to hang out with you. I want to have a good dinner with you. Fellowship. Which brings me to the second point, that not only does the soul have a hunger and that hunger is fed through prayer, but... But that prayer is being fully known. It's, it's 
back to the Garden of Eden. It's being naked and unashamed. How many people in your life fully know you and still love you? The closest relationship we can think of is is the spouse relationship. And we might even argue that if our spouse heard everything we actually thought, well, that's why we had the counseling thing yesterday for the marriage. (laughs) It's fellowship with God. Psalm 42, uh, again, says, says this. These things I remember, the psalmist prays and says to God, I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession in the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. He says, I pour out my soul. Yesterday, Paul Tripp uh, talked a little bit about prayer, and he said that he has a prayer that he prays every single morning. And that first prayer, before he even gets out of bed, is God help me. Transparency, dependency. See, one of the things that, that, that uh, Paul Tripp said yesterday as well, which I was thankful for that because he's basically the sermon for this morning, so, um, is He says the gospel is moving. This is powerful. The gospel is moving from independence to dependence. A relationship with God is moving from independence to dependence. See, we live in the United States of America. You've been taught, right? The independence. Be independent. Be a courageous person. It's all about you. Be number one. You can do it. Empower you. Empower you. Empower you. But the gospel is the opposite of that. The gospel is, no, you can't do it. You need God. The first recognition of prayer, the first reality of prayer is is to feed on God, but it's to be fully known. And to be fully known, it's it's to be naked and unashamed with him, confessing your sin because he loves you no matter where you've gone, what you've done, and and what you've said. and, And you stand there before him and it's just simply saying, God, I need you. I cannot do this on my own. This is how I got in the ministry. I had a conversation with another pastor this uh, last week. He said, how did you get into the ministry? And I said, I got tired of living life by myself. So I went to a school of ministry to figure out how not to live by myself. And when I graduated the school, they said, we want you on staff. And now here I am. God has called me into himself and into his mission. It's being fully known. You have a desire to be fully known and fully loved. And that happens in prayer. It's transparency. It's openness. Number three, prayer is fully knowing. Fully knowing. Fully knowing God. You know why? You want to know why one of the reasons real prayer is hard? Because of those two truths. To be fully known and to fully know God. You see, you're allowing God to look into your heart, and that can be hard. And when you start to look at God and see how holy he is and see how unholy you are, that's really uncomfortable. It can be difficult. Will God answer my prayer? What will he say? Murray McShane says, What a man is, what a man is, alone on his knees before God, that he is and no more. See, when you're before the presence of God, you have to humble yourself. See, prayer is, is, is recognizing before God, you're the creator, I'm the created. And I have to be humbled in that point. C.S. Lewis gives us this image. He says, if you're a proud person, you'll never be able to see God. Because a proud person looking down on everyone cannot see something that is above him, bigger than him. And from that image, I get that it is in God's presence that I learn humility I really don't know how sinful I am unless I am in the presence of a holy God. One of the things I heard this week, it may have been Tripp again, but um, he said your prayer life, the 
The clearer your image of God is, the clearer you know God, the clearer your prayers will be. And the less you know about God, and the more vague God is to you, the more vague your prayers will be. What he's saying, in essence, is, is, is that for you to know God and be in relationship with God is you dive into prayer and you let him fully know you, and you come to fully know God, you get a clearer picture of who God is. And the reality of that means that, that you're now living in a greater truth and a greater reality. As we shared last week, I, I, I love the quote, Christians are the most pessimistic and the most optimistic at the same time. We recognize the world is dark. It's bad. It needs saving. And guess what? The most optimistic, we have a Savior. Yep, things are bad, but things are getting better thanks to Jesus. You know, what's interesting about the prayer life of Jesus, when you study the life of Jesus, is oftentimes when Jesus prayed, he removed himself from the crowds and the throngs, and he would go to the mountain, which is kind of somewhat of an easier visual for us because we live in the mountains. And there's something about if you've been, whether it's at Heavenly or you've been another one of the the ski resorts, right, that, that have a beautiful view of the lake and, and you get to the top of the lake or if you're up on the top of Rim Trail and, and, you, and you're standing there and it's just, it is just so awe-inspiring and incredible. Somebody posted a picture of some mountains this morning on their Instagram feed and just the picture itself, I know it didn't do it justice, but I was just taken back at how beautiful it was. And so Jesus would go to the mountain. I think we have to ask the question, why would Jesus go to the mountain? And I think the answer is there's some security in the mountains, but there's majesty in the mountains. But more than anything, when you go to the top of a mountain, there's clarity. When I was a young, uh, young guy in high school, we lived at the base of Tahoe Donner, as I shared a little bit last week. And whenever I had a depressing moment, I would hike up behind uh, where my house was because there's no houses behind it. And there was a big rock on top of this mountain. And I would climb up the mountain, go to the top of that rock, sit on that rock, and I would pray to God. And oftentimes that prayer would simply just be, God help me. Because no one had really taught me how to pray. I just knew that God existed and, and God could help me. So I prayed for help and, and so I requested that help. But, but one of the things about that spot was it gave me a view, almost, almost as if God was pulling me out of my own self and gave me a view of the world I live in, the, you know, Truckee, California. I go to school over there. I could see Truckee High and I could see the field that I played football on and I could see downtown. And it was almost like being removed from the community, giving a big view of the, the community, getting a bigger picture of the community and getting clarity in my life. And this is what it's like to be in prayer. It's going to the top of the mountain to get majesty, to see God as majestic, but to get clarity on life, how, how life really is. Right in our prayer discussion uh, in our marriage stuff yesterday, um, I think, he, I think he was stating something along the lines of when you're angry with your spouse and, and when both of you are angry and you just stop and say pray, it's incredibly difficult to still be angry after you're done praying. Husbands, wives, have you ever tried that? I've done it twice, I think. Because <laughs> right, all, of a sudden, all of a sudden it's no longer about you. You're in the majesty of God. You're in the presence of God. And, and you realize, I'm being prideful. I'm being arrogant, I'm being emotional, whatever it might be. There's the humility that exists, and you stand on the mountain, you realize God created these things. Now, let me just ask you, do you view prayer that way? Majestic. Naked before the Lord. Fully knowing you and still loving you. And coming to know God and seeing the greatness of God. One pastor, in contrast to how maybe most Christians see prayer, he says, in a nutshell, we see prayer typically as medicine, where Jesus sees it as food. 
We see prayer as a vitamin supplement to our strength. Jesus sees it as a whole new diet, a whole new way of living. There, there must be riches in prayer we don't know anything about. We only pray when we feel like we've blown it. Jesus never blows it, but Jesus is praying all the time. So first we see the purpose of prayer is opening to God. It's being open to God, being with God. Now, we see Jesus teaches on prayer in the Lord's Prayer. We see an example of his prayer here. There's many more examples throughout Scripture, and I just want to share a few of them with you this morning so you understand the variety of ways that we can pray. I thought about maybe doing a little bit of a study on the different kinds of prayer in this time, you know, defining what praise is, defining what worship is, defining what confession or petition and thanksgiving are. But rather, I just want to paint a picture that in the Bible, we see people praying in all kinds of different ways. Standing, lifting up their hands, sitting, kneeling, looking upward, bowing down, putting their heads between their knees, beating their breasts, and facing the temple of God. All that to be said, you can pray in any position you want to pray. It doesn't have to be on your knees, but it can be. There are times where you see people in the Bible, they prostrate themselves before God when they pray. They lay on their belly. And a form of that is just, again, it's the humility. You are a holy God. I'm a sinful man. Who am I? But then there's many emotions in talking to God. You find that people prayed while wearing sackcloth, sitting in ashes, a form of, of mourning, crying in tears, throwing dust on their heads, tearing their garments while fasting. We see People sighing, groaning, groaning, crying out loud, sweating blood himself, Jesus, as he prayed. Agonizing with broken hearts or making a vow or making sacrifices or singing songs. The reality is in this is that you can pray, pray wherever you want, however you want, and you can pray with whatever emotion you're feeling at that time. It's about being fully known. You know God can handle your emotions? Your spouse can't always handle your emotions, can they? Careful. Your children can't always handle their, your emotions, can they? I've messed that up as a father at times. I can't handle my kids' emotions all the time. I can't handle my wife's emotions all the time. But one thing we know about prayer, one thing we know about God is, is it, it's easy for men to become tired of listening to men, but God never gets tired of listening to men. God never tires to hear what you have to say or how you have to say it or what kind of emotions you're feeling. God's ears are never satiated and never wearied by men's prayers. You know, to contrast this with the Catholic Church, they, they basically teach in, in some form of, you know, hey, Jesus is a big guy. He's got a lot going on. He's really busy. Don't bother him with everything. You know, rather, rather you can pray to Saint so-and-so for this and Saint so-and-so for that and Saint so-and-so for this and Saint so-and-so for that. But don't bother Jesus with those things. You can even buy little medallions. You can hang around your neck for protection because it's got Saint so-and-so on it. Now, we don't believe that. That's nonsense. Jesus is God. He can handle all of your petitions. He can handle all of your, your, your weariness, all of your prayers, all of your asking, all of your worship. He's capable. He's totally capable. The way one pastor says about prayer, he says, prayer is our way of entering into the happiness of God himself. Don't you love that? Entering in the very heart of God, his joy. He goes on and says, you enter into a spiritual atmosphere wherein God's presence and grace exert pressure or influence on your life. God's purpose in prayer is not for us to inform or persuade him to respond to our needs. 
See, the, 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 the question I said, which, is your prayer life like that? Is it like the mountaintop and the contrast that would be, or is it more like the mail-in request? You know the mail-in request. You write your letter to so-and-so, you put a stamp on it, and you send it in the mail, and you hope for some kind of response. Right? There's no connection. There's no intimacy. Or do you view it the way God does? You're sitting at the table with God. You're entering into God's emotion. And it's not about, again, it's not about, uh, about you changing God's mind about something. It's about God putting the pressure on you and influencing you to be changed in the likeness of Jesus Christ. I've said it to people before. If you've really experienced God, if you've really entered into the presence of God, you can't sit in the presence of a holy God and leave and be the same person. And the reason that we don't experience the kind of change that we desire is because many of us, what we do in prayer would not even be defined as prayer. As if it's all about just asking God for something rather than being in communion with God. He goes on and he says, but to open sincere and continual lines of communication with him, prayer more than anything else, is sharing the needs, burdens, hungers of our hearts with a God who cares. He wants to hear us and commune with us more than we could ever want to commune with him because his love for us is so much greater than our love for him. Amen? We love only because he first loved us. And so we come to God that we would say, God, would you, would you mold and shape me to be, to be like you, to, to worship you, to desire you, to want you? Would you influence me, God? When oftentimes so many of us come to prayer to influence God. I love the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? If I'm in that fire, I'm praying to get the heck out. Daniel in the lion's den. Get me out of here. And what happens in those examples? God meets them in the midst. Tell me what's more important to you to be removed from your crisis to get out of your hell or for God to make a meeting with you in that place. See, what happens in those kind of scenarios is, is we have to start asking the question, do I really desire God or do I really desire situational happiness? Do I really desire God or do I just desire situational happiness? Prayer is not to just give us situational happiness. Prayer is to give us the happiness of God in our hearts to move us to be with Him. The Bible teaches in regards to prayer that prayer should happen how often? Well, daily. As I shared, Paul Tripp says, first prayer he prays before he gets out of bed, every single day, God help. God help. Right? When you say God help, you're moving from independence to dependence. His second prayer, his second prayer he says is, let me accept the helpers you send my way. Send me your helpers, whether it's through scripture, whether it's through a friend, whether it's through a Bible verse, whatever it might be, just send me your helpers, God, and give me the humility to actually say yes to those helpers and not pride to resist them. So, so it's, we pray daily. Ian Bounds, who wrote a great book on prayer, he says, every day demands its bread. You got to eat every day, don't you? Some of us multiple times a day. Some of us multiple, multiple times a day. Every day demands its bread, so every day demands its prayer. No amount of praying done today will suffice for tomorrow's praying. On the other hand, no praying for tomorrow is of any great value to us today. Today's manna is what we need. Tomorrow, God will see that our needs are supplied. This is the faith which God seeks to inspire. 
So leave tomorrow with its cares, its needs, its troubles, and God's hands. There's no storing tomorrow's grace or tomorrow's praying. Neither is there any laying up of today's grace to meet tomorrow's necessities. We cannot have tomorrow's grace. We cannot eat tomorrow's bread. We cannot do tomorrow's praying. His mercies are new every day. Right? Every day we need to recognize our need for God, God's presence, that God is there, that he loves us, even though he knows everything about us. Not only should we pray every day, though, the Bible tells us to pray moment by moment. Right? Not, not only, not only do you, do you, can you not store up tomorrow's prayer for, for tomorrow, you, you, you can't store up next moment's prayer for right now. One pastor says in regards to Ephesians 6.18, which tells us to pray at all times, he says, I think, if, I think of praying at all times as living in, a con, in continual God consciousness, where everything we see and experience becomes a kind of prayer lived in a deep awareness of and surrender to our Heavenly Father. To obey this exhortation means that when we are tempted, when we're tempted, we hold the temptation before God and ask for His help. When we experience something good and beautiful, we immediately thank the Lord for it. When we see evil around us, we ask God to make it right and to allow us to help accomplish that, if it is according to His will. When we meet someone who does not know Christ, we pray for God to draw that person to himself and to use us as faithful witnesses. When we encounter trouble, we turn to God as our deliverer. Thus, I love this, listen. Thus life becomes continually ascending prayer. All life's thoughts, deeds, and circumstances become opportunities to commune with our Heavenly Father. And that way we constantly set our minds on the things above and not on the things on earth. What is one of the great things the Bible teaches about your understanding? Lean not. But isn't that our natural bend? Ladies and gentlemen, is it not our natural bend? If I gave you a problem to solve right now, would you first go to God in prayer and go, I got this. Right? I got this. I can do this. And we do. We put our our natural abilities into it, and we forget that God is, is there. And, and what he's saying about moment by moment is to bring God into absolutely everything. Don't lean on your own understanding, because your understanding, is, is, its inclination is natural and it's self-centered. But when you bring God into it, it can immediately become something that is God-glorifying, God-exalting, and actually a, a life of worship, which brings meaning to everything that you do. See, we don't need less of God's presence. We need more of the recognition of God's presence. So the Bible teaches us about all kinds of other places that people pray. They pray in battle. They pray in a cave. They pray in a closet, in a garden, on a mountainside, by a river, by the sea, in the street, in the temple, in bed, although I don't recommend that one as much as I stated earlier because you'll fall asleep. In a home. We even see a guy praying from the belly of a fish in the book of Jonah, on top of a housetop, on a roof, in a prison, in the wilderness. Jesus himself prays on the cross. Paul says, I want the men in every place to pray. Are you listening, men? I want the men in every place to pray. What place? Men in every single place. For see, the, the faithful, spirit-filled Christian, every place becomes a place of prayer. And prayer is worship, which makes everything that we do an act of worship. 
It should be an act of worship. You know, in addition to this, because, because it is so difficult, the Bible teaches that we should pray with perseverance. They keep on praying. But don't give up. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see something that's really interesting in, in at least three different places. Acts 1.14, Acts 2.42, and Acts 6.4. And you're seeing in Acts the growth of the church, the Holy Spirit given, and then the, the, the growth of the church. And in these three verses, you'll find that the, the leaders in the church, the people of the church, as they went from just a few to thousands, it says they devoted themselves to prayer. Everyone say devoted. You know, that, that's discipleship. Discipleship is devoting yourself to follow the teachings of someone else. And this is what they did. They devoted themselves to prayer. And this, this idea of devotion is to be courageously persistent. I don't have time to, to oh, maybe we do. Uh, the quote here, Charles Spurgeon. Someone said uh, they've been reading Spurgeon a lot lately because I've been quoting him a lot, so I'll just keep quoting him. He says this, if we prevail, we must persist. We must continue incessantly and constantly and know no pause to our prayer till we win the mercy to the fullest possible extent. Men ought to always pray. Week by week, month by month, year by year. The conversion of that dear child is to be the father's main plea. The bringing in of that unconverted husband is to lie upon the wife's heart night and day till she gets it. She is not to take even 10 or 20 years of unsuccessful prayer as a reason why she should cease. She is to set God no times nor seasons, but so long as there is life in her, and life in the dear object of her solicitude, she is to continue still to plead with the mighty God of Jacob. The pastor, here's for me, so you preach to myself too. The pastor is not to seek a blessing on his people occasionally, occasionally, and then receiving a measure of it uh, to desist from it further, from further intercession, but he is to continue vehemently without pause, without restraining his energies, to cry aloud and spare not till the windows of heaven be opened and a blessing be given too large for him to house. Persistent. Who are you praying for? Who have you stopped praying for? Because it just has been too long. Or Spurgeon would say, I think Scripture would say, don't give up. Knock, dine with God. See, see the idea with prayer is, again, we're not, we're not saying, God, change your mind about this. We're saying, God, be with me. What's your heart? Do you, know you're, do you know God cares more about the lost than you ever will? Do you know that? You will never love people as much as Jesus does. Hate to rain on your parade. And some of you are like, well, that is a definitely true statement. Yeah. That doesn't mean you're not to love, and to, but you're, you're to pray. You're to be persistent. And here's the, the, the last part of this section of the sermon here. Prayer is something you've got to learn. Right? The disciples saw Jesus pray, and they said, teach me how to do that. It's a lifelong process, too. I'm still learning how to pray. One of the things about that persistence in prayer and, and the, life of, the life being a life of prayer, Martin Luther said, said something pretty radical on his thesis. He said, you know, the life of a believer is supposed to be a life of repentance. It's not a one-time deal that you do when you come to the Lord. It's a lifelong process of turning from one kind of life to the better life. 
And prayer, I would argue, would, would be the, the life of a Christian should be a life of prayer. And that's a life of learning. And so is repentance, is it not? It's hard to learn how to say no to the things that you know your flesh wants and to say yes to the things of the Spirit. And God is constantly saying, turn from the life of death and come to the life that gives more life, life abundantly. God says, I want you to be a part of who I am because it's going to be the life that blesses you. It's going to be the life that brings joy to you. It's going to be the life of great community and great responsibility. It's going to be a a harder life, but it's going to be a better life. And for those of you who've been Christians for a long time, you know it's better. Some of you know my story. You know it was dark. My story was dark. It is so much better in the arms of Jesus Christ and the presence of God than anything I could ever thought or imagined for myself. See, when God came to me in high school, he did. I heard him say it. I want you, I'm 18 years old, I want you to be a pastor. And I said, no. No. Because nobody thinks it's cool to be a pastor unless you're another pastor. I didn't want that for myself. And now I look back on the last, since I was 21 years old, I look back and go, this is exactly what he created me for. What was I thinking in 18? I'm sure most of you can say that too. What was I thinking at 18? But God is good. Because the beautiful thing about prayer, Jesus is praying in John 17. He's talking to the Father about his disciples. If you don't pray to Jesus, Jesus will still continue to pray for you. He will not stop. He will be persistent. He will not give up on you. He will continue to make his petition to the Father that you would experience the goodness of Jesus Christ. There's a portion of Scripture where Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, I got good news for you. Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. But take heart, because I'm praying for you, Peter. You see, where we fail in prayer, Jesus is successful in prayer. And so the application where we get into, like I said, I I don't have time to do due diligence. We may take several weeks to get into this, but there's eight things that that, that I see here that Jesus prays. If you will, some commentators have said what what Jesus is doing in essence is is he's praying, is he's evaluating the last several years of his ministry, and he's identifying to the Father Eight successful foundations, eight things that have have brought him success as King Jesus in his life. And I think there are eight things that we should pray. Not not just the the, the part of prayer, which if all you get this morning is, is this. If the only takeaway you get is to wake up tomorrow and just pray, God, help me, then I've preached successfully. And some of you are like, you could have done that in five minutes. We could have left already. If that's all you get, fine. But but there's, there's more here. Jesus' life from the beginning to the end of his ministry was marked by frequent times of prayer. He prays at his baptism. He prays at his first uh, preaching tour. He prays before he picks his disciples. He prays after feeding the 5,000. Just time and time again, his life is identified as a life of prayer and intimacy with God. But here, there's eight things that he prays for that we should pray for ourselves and also pray for others. The first one, The first one is this, verses 2 through 4, I have glorified you on earth. It's the first thing he prays for. But you know what's crazy about this prayer? It's a prayer to die. 
I have glorified your name, and I'm going to glorify it. I'm going to die for you. One of the greatest prayers a Christian can pray is that they would gaze and yearn to see God's glory. It's one of the greatest things you can pray. It's the prayer of Moses in the cleft of the rock. Let me see your glory. It's the, it should be the prayer of every man. Let, let me see your light. Let me gaze upon you. In fact, in Ephesians, one of the greatest prayers in Ephesians, Paul prays and he says, he doesn't say, I pray that you'll have this and I'll pray that you'll get this. He says, I'm praying. I'm praying for you, church. I'm praying for you, Ephesus. I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be illuminated to the riches, the glory you have in Jesus Christ. Do you know one of the biggest solutions to all of your problems is to see the glory of God. Because when you gaze at the glory of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God, everything else in life pales in comparison. What should you pray? Yeah, God, I need your help. I need to see how great you are. I need to see my dependence for you. Number two, number two, he says, I've finished the work which you have given me to do. He's seen it through. What he's saying is, I've been faithful. At a point here, he says, I haven't lost any except for the one that I was supposed to lose. But I haven't lost any. What I started, I finished. Let me ask you a question this morning. What have you started and not finished? That God wants you to pray to finish. Or what should you start that God wants you to see through? Don't you want to finish well? See, we get concerned sometimes about starting stuff. I guess starting, I'm going to worry about starting. We don't always get as concerned about making sure it gets done right. To the glory of God. What ministry does God want you to start and see through and finish? What, what thing does God want you to do for his glory that you're not only supposed to start, you're to finish? Number three, I've manifested your name. He says, he, if you remember the Gospel of John, our whole theme through the Gospel of John has been that you may believe. That people who don't know Jesus would put their faith in Jesus and people who have put their faith in Jesus, that their faith would be strengthened in Jesus, that you would believe. And this is what Jesus says, I've manifested it, they believe. How are you to manifest God's name? To make it known. To live out the gospel in front of others. He says in two different places, I'm sorry, two different, um, if, you, if you can go back to that, I hit the wrong button. If someone's back there to do it. I have given them the word. That's number four. The living word, the rhema and the logos. And in verse eight, it's, it's one word. And in verses 13 through 17, it's another. I don't have time to go into it. But he's saying, basically, I've given, you the, I've given them the living word, the thing that's going to last within them. I've taught them the word of God. In what ways should you grow in the knowledge of God's word? In what ways should you be praying for God's word? One thing, if you've ever heard my wife pray, she prays scripture. It's beautiful. She's got all these verses memorized. Verses I think she doesn't even realize that she has memorized. And so when she prays, it's just scriptures coming out. And it's like she gets lost in it as she's praying. And it's a beautiful thing. And you go, man, the language is beautiful. In fact, there's two different books I would recommend if you want to grow in your prayer life. One is The Valley of Vision. It's, it's a list of Puritan prayers. Uh, and then John MacArthur has a book of prayer uh, that, of prayers, prayers that he has prayed before and after his sermons. And let me just say this about, the, about those. One is, it's beautiful because you get these great examples of just like articulate prayer. And have you ever been around somebody who's just really articulate in prayer? 
I know most of you are probably saying, that ain't me. I remember for a long time, my dad, when he first started praying, he always prayed like this. God the Father, I thank you for the love you've given me. And, and God the Father, I thank you for, for what you're doing. And, and God the Father, and he'd say God the Father before, after every sentence. Do you ever talk to anybody else like that? Anka, it's good to see you. Anka, how you doing? Anka, Anka. Right? And as intimacy grows, as knowledge grows in the Word of God, the clearer your prayers become. Let me say this. Those books are great. This prayer is great as an example of articulate prayer. But just know that some of the best prayers are totally inarticulate. Sometimes the best prayer is just to roll out of bed, right? And, and you go, man, Jesse had that line about praying for your need. And, but in your mind, you know, just in a moment, you're like, I can't even muster that thought. So you just roll out of bed and you go. <sighs> you waddle to the shower, right? Because for whatever reason. God understands the emotion. God loves you anyways. Even though you don't know how to say what you want to say, he knows that you want to say it in your heart. But as he's manifested the word, he's given us language that we can learn to articulate back to God. You can articulate the promises back to God. God, you've promised to be faithful to me. And I'm going to call you on that, not because I'm proud or arrogant, but because you're God and you're true to your word. He says, I've kept them. He's prayed for those that are his. He's, he's kept them. He hasn't lost any of them. And this is number five. And, and I would say to you, do you pray for your church, that, that God would keep his church, his church, that, that no one would be lost within our family? One of the things I make, I make an effort to do when I haven't seen a family in a few weeks, I try to reach out to them in some way. How are you doing? Where are you at? You know that's incredibly difficult for me to do at a church of this size. But do you know you have relationships with others in this room that I don't have relationships with? Do you pray that God uh, would keep them and guard them, that they wouldn't leave him or forsake him or run to sin or, or let the brokenness of their marriage or the brokenness of their kids or the brokenness of their job lead to them not being here? Pray that God would keep his people. Verse 18, this is number six, says, I've sent them. He's put his disciples on mission and he wants to put you on mission. The question is, who, who do you know, who do you know that is not saved, that is not a Christian, that you should be praying for incessantly that they would come to Jesus Christ? I absolutely love um, the ways that it comes out in different, different situations where people find out I'm a pastor that don't know I'm a pastor. There's this really large dude in the gym. I've been talking to him in the gym for about three months. And last week, he comes up to me, and he's talking. You know, he loves to talk about his kids, loves his kids. And amen, I'm, it's awesome. His kids are graduated. He's a little older than me. So after about three months of us talking and yucking it up in the gym, he finally says, oh, by the way, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor at Sierra Bible Church. He literally did this. <laughs> and, and after walking a few steps, he turned and went, it was like it hurt his head <laughs> to know what I did. And then he says, it almost looked like he was kind of running through all the conversations the last three months to it. <laughs> and then he says to me, he goes, man, I thought you were military. And I went, what? <laughs> you know. And then we got to talking about God, talking about Jesus. Do you know now I have an obligation 
to pray for the will of God in that man's soul. One of the things, and I say this to you, I say this to you in all, all seriousness, please be praying because the gym, and the, ever since Christmas, has turned into more of a mission field than I thought it would turn into. The gym was supposed to be my solitude, but there's a feeling since Christmas time that everyone in the gym now knows I'm a pastor. I was, it, was a, it was secret. <laughs> the secret's out, and people look at me and treat me and talk to me differently since more people now know. I have an obligation to bring the glory of Jesus Christ to that arena. Jesus has sent me, not just to Sierra Bible, but to the Truckee community. And he's going to send you as well. Number seven, I've set myself apart that they may be sanctified. This is being set apart to be holy, to be used by God. And then number eight, that they may be one with me as I am one with you. We now come full circle. Prayer is about being intimate and one with God. Being with him. Husbands, you can't have a good relationship with your wife if you don't hang out with her. And you don't talk to her and you don't listen to her. Wives, you can't have a great relationship with your husbands if you don't hang out with them and listen to them, talk to them. You cannot have a good relationship with God if you do not hang out with God. Here's the good news, though. He says prayer isn't just going into the closet, guys. Prayer is all the time, everywhere. May our life be a life of prayer. Amen? Jesus, as we sing to you, may our song, our singing, be a type of prayer to you. Would you use your words from this morning to deepen our prayer lives with you, God? Lord, would we be in awe of you? You are majestic. Would we be able to experience that majesty in a way, again, that that changes us, moves us, and allows us to be used for your glory? And we trust you to do that work, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.